welcome to the podcast with me nightly readings with fiona and super glad to hear from y'all i'm so excited to dive into this podcast i'm going to be reading revolution plus love literary history women's bodies and thematic repetition in 20th century chinese fiction by lu jiamei today for a total of 25 minutes with a 10 minute interpretation or reflection or analysis period question mark anyways I must admit though, before I get started, I have to say that I did record about nine minutes of this already, but it got deleted, so I'm a little bit sad right now, but fear not, we are still going to power through this, especially since I've already finished the first page, more things, I can probably read it better, or maybe I'll be stumbling over my words. I am tired today, I won't lie, I'm recording this on a Sunday, so it's like... I know tomorrow is the beginning of the week and it is also the end of the week. Funny how that works. Um, But I'm also super excited because as a person who engages in organizing, revolution is not often talked about in the context or in relationship or in being intertwined with love and joy, especially in context to Asian history and specifically Chinese history. So I will admit I am super amped to be reading this with y'all today. And so I will begin with the first page. So the introduction, so introduction, revolution plus love. As a theme or formula was first popularized in the late 1920s. It was a specifically literary response to political events. The collaboration and breakup 1923 to 1927 of the Nationalist Party, the GMD, and the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and the subsequent urban and rural insurrections, as well as the Soviet Revolution's international influence, which played a crucial role in the emergence of this literary practice. Broadly speaking, this theme referred to a special set of issues related to the rising expectations of the quote revolution and in cultural aftermath of the May 4th movement 1919, such as the position of the self within a society in turmoil, the increasing clashes between the bourgeoisie and proletariat, and the conjunction of political and sexual identities. This extremely popular but understudied theme, which not only was favored by leftist writers during the early period of revolutionary literature, but also continued to influence mainstream literature up to the 1970s, has been used to convey diverse meanings that allow us to re-examine the contingency and contestedness of modern Chinese literary history. Although this theme was overwhelmingly framed by political consciousness, the interactions between revolution and love in the works it produced remain highly disputed. There are still many neglected and disconcerting questions. What has it meant, for example, to be an individual and express that politically to associate sexual drive with politics in the turbulent history of 20th century China? Does the connection between revolution and love echo 
only the official version of modern Chinese history, or is it an essential component of all narratives of this history? What is the role of gender in the expression and representation of politics, with which it has been intimately intertwined? How do we look at eroticized representation of bodies, which have a multitude of political and cultural meanings? The relationship between literature and politics and gender and power and modernity and tradition are revealed in a network of changing and often conflicting representations of the revolution and love. The complex interaction and mutual influence between these elements in different historical moments not only reveal the contradiction and paradoxes surrounding the Chinese project of modernity, but also to provide some insight into the history of modern Chinese literature beyond linear and evolutionary historically uh, historically and established genres. In recent years, literary studies have examined revolution and love as discrete and autonomous constructions. Few have paid critical attention to the relationship between them. Among these critics, such as Meng Yu, argue that revolutionary discourse delimited and repressed from um, repressed the private realm of desire, love, sexuality, self, and of all emotions during the Mao years, declaring that such an understanding imposes a strict dichotomy between political repression and bodily energy. Wang Ban emphasizes sexually charged communist culture in which love and pleasure have gone beyond the heterosexual relationship. Quote, private desire can take public, political, and apparently non-sexual guises, end quote. For the most part, however, neither of these interpretations that the politics of revolution typically overwhelms and represses love, woman, and sexuality. The libidinal energy is the deep psychic root for both, takes into account that no single model can adequately explain the often overlapping and contradictory historical expressions of relationship between revolution and love. The revolutionary discourse during the Mao years certainly influenced and shaped the construction of gender norms and sexuality, but these codes of bodily and sexual behavior could in turn transform the sublime form of revolution. In fact, as we have stepped into a new millennium and look back into the to examine the interactions between revolution and love in the 20th century, we must be aware that the changes in their relationships and meanings refer to a performative and dynamic concept of literary history. Realizing that both revolution and love are culturally variable rather than fixed and timeless entities. I see the interplay between the two complex and constantly changing literary practice that is social and historically uh, constituted. In this book, I seek to confound prevailing academic paradigms that treat the interplay of revolution and love in only one model. Regarding this relationship as a volatile site for representing and displacing political and sexual identities, I examine for 
formally writing of quote revolution plus love from the 1930s to contemporary period as a case study of literary politics that structures the possibilities available to agents and their relationship to the literary literary field by drawing a historical picture of the articulation and re-articulation of this theme, I know how the change of revolutionary discourse forces unpredictable relationships, uh, representations of gender rules and a power relations and how women bodies register under multiple and incommensurable differences haunting the hegemonic narratives in modern Chinese literature. Next section, modernity and revolution. (sighs) Revolution and love are two of the most powerful discourses shaping Chinese modern identity. Love contains irreductible components of the individual's sexual identity and bodily experiences, relationships between man, uh, between man and woman, and self, a sense of self-fulfillment. Revolution is related to the trajectory of progress, freedom, equality, and emancipation. Since there, since these two categories constitute clash with or otherwise influence each other in the, in the mainstream narrative of modern Chinese literature, recent scholarship has usually considered them both um, considered them as the two major tropes of modernity. As Tang Xiaobing aptly puts it, quote, the both terms of the antimony revolution as experience of collective power and love as successful socialization though through personal freedom are central ideological constructs in the legitimate sorry (laughs) y'all legitimatizing discourse of modernity end quote such metaphoric treatment assumes however that both terms are transhistorical or immutable thereby wiping out their separate separate historical identities as well as the intellectual gen- genealogy of their marriage moreover it sets up the term modernity as a pan- pancaea making it an empty term one that has lost contact with the dynamic and contradictory historical realities that revolution and love struggle to define. Much of the recent study of modern Chinese literature in the United States can be seen as an effort to question the association of modernity with the ideas of progress, newness, revolution, enlightenment, and national salvation. Its significance lies in the interrogation of the literary canon set originally by the May 4th writers and their works. However, Alexander de Forges claims the scholarship on modernity in modern Chinese literature already has an, quote, essentially fetishistic character, end quote, that often presumes a monolithic Chinese tradition in opposition to modern uh, literature and ignores Chinese texts by valorizing European theoretical constructions. Interesting. Those inquiries into 
the definition of modernity usually rely on adding a word or two in front of this key word such as belated, semi-colonial, translated, repressed, alternative, and Chinese. Although he sees these approaches as productive, De Forges has raised the following questions. The fetish of modernity leads one to wonder, is this scholarly emphasis on a modernity that is subjective, spectral, limited, failed, problematic, or once removed, a modernity that can't show itself without a prefix? Appropriate only in Chinese in the Chinese in the study of Chinese literature? Or is it possible that literary modernity such as fundamentally contradictory and problematic it is true that heavily reliance on western theories of modernity may obscure the complexity and paradoxes of chinese history within which the head heterogeneity of texts has diffused and problematized the master narrative of Chinese modernity. Furthermore, the inquiries on modernity have ignored that they are interventions and interventions by scholars who tried to find certain ways to interpret Chinese modern reality. Deforge's rethinking of this fetishization is significant because although modernity and its associated theories have brought to light some repressed modernities, I want to just pause right now. I know I'm at like minute 13 of reading, not really at minute 25, but I just want to pause because this reading is super dense. And there's so many things that just went on, and that was only four pages. So I just want to say that first off, this book is amazing, though filled with jargon. Um, and I read the preface earlier on, or the acknowledgments, one of those things. And the author had committed to trying to use less jargon. So I can just imagine how much jargon was originally in this. But let's just go back. Um, a lot of the things that have been mentioned about modernity and revolution, I think is interesting because um, I think I agree with Alexander de Forges because framing modern modern <laughs> i hate this word so much but basically the concept that you know we are fetishizing this new enlightenment um what does it mean to be fresh and new and and hip and modern and all these other things when it's like you know very much this minute relied on the last um and we cannot get to point c without being at point a in the first place so I think it's really interesting to like try to frame the time of the time frame of the book and what it's talking about with the concept of being modern and what is it what is being modern um, 
and I could be misinterpreting totally so don't take my word for it because I do tend to do that um, and just run with my own ideas but I digress and I think also a great note in the introduction were the questions posed especially about gender identity and heterosexual gender identity and I I'm wondering you know if this book is gonna highlight transness in any part of it and so I'm really excited to continue reading but you know again we're just on page four so I have to continue reading anyways I'll start here um DeForge's rethinking of this fetishization is significant because although modernity and its associated theories have brought to light some quote repressed modernities, they also may have burdened complex social contradictions that cannot fully explain. For instance, the modernities such as much in fashion are largely incompatible with revolution, represented by leftist literature around the 1930s. For they are in tune with capitalist modernity, which leftist literature rejects. As consumerism has overwhelmed socialism in contemporary mainland China, it is easy to forget that Chinese leftists originally tried to challenge the myth of capitalist modernity. Quote, the belief that industrial reshaping of the world is capable of bringing about the good society by providing material happiness for the masses indeed end quote indeed the catastrophe of the cultural revolution has had deleterious effect on stopping many of us from remembering that revolution arose as a pursuit of a better future but during the specific historical time when Chinese intellectuals embraced revolution, an embrace that was often expressed in a passionate and violent form, it was because revolution gave them hope, transferring their anxiety for, about national salvation and modern crises into the utopian version of a perfect future. Carrying the legitimate human desire for both personal and collective, revo- ha- collective happiness, revolution has much to do with concepts of the classes and motifs that constitute modern history. Revolution does not abandon technological technology, science, and modernization, but criticizes the social conditions of capitalist production. What the fetish of modernity ignores is precisely such a utopian vision of a modern society, as well as Chinese intellectuals' aspirations, anxieties, and despairs involved in it. The trauma of the Cultural Revolution engendered widespread disenchantment with revolutionary ideology. The Communist Party and the grand narrative of history as a discursive term, quote, modernity, has 
um, started to be drawn into literary criticism in mainland China, along with cultural heat in the 1980s. However, a critical call for resistance to to modernity, Western modernization, was not heard until 1988. There is no doubt that the discourses of modernity and anti-modernity has successfully defamiliarized the literary critical field occupied as it is with such terms as class struggle by bringing up by bringing in many western theories of modernism postmodernism and postcolonialism the fetish of modernity has largely dominated academic interests in the field of modern chinese literature both in the united states and in mainland china some literary critics celebrated modernity's current discursive hegemony without reflections or critiques of the internal contradictions of western modernization others welcomed the use of this term but with great concern and wondered if chinese modernization is entirely a reprint or copy of western modernization pause so many things sort of that last sentence and wondered if Chinese modernization is entirely a reprint or copy of Western modernization. I feel like the answer is no. And I don't know. It, It definitely is a mimic in terms of like what is Western modern things, right? What is it associated? At least in my mind, I would say it's like you have urban cities that have solar panels and power plants and can have a busy, bustling street full of people wearing college shirts with that have buttons on them. And I think like in my mind, this is the concept of modern Western culture, um, is very urban and, and you know, we get to work type of um, vibe to it. And when I think about Chinese culture and, you know, it's it does not just revolve around that. And I think like, even when you get to the technological aspect of it, I very much believe that Western civilizations now are mimicking the East and specifically China. I mean, you know, they everyone basically has a digital wallet in China, especially if you live in the urban areas. I'm not going to say everyone. I would say most, especially emphasis on the urban. Um, and then you have... America and the UK and all these other places starting maybe Western Europe I would say has more of a grasp on this technology but I definitely feel like the people who got it down first were were the Chinese so I find it interesting that even the concept of modernity in in the west and you know what is considered modern is still very much 
cultural appropriation if i might add because the ingenuity in my opinion for many things comes from yes inspiration from the west in the first place but the people who really got it kicking and going first were not people of the west but i digress and you know i mean obviously what does it mean to be modern and in the social sense see i think that also denotes the fact that there are problems social problems that are very deeply intertwined with western societies and the ramifications of being the colonizer being the oppressor and what does it mean to be in a post-glory state, I guess? Those are just sort of some of my off-the-rip thoughts. But let me just continue. <laughs> Indeed. And I'm on page five, by the way. Indeed, the global economy has fostered the spread of modernity as a hegemonic discourse under the new name of globalization. As a result, what is at stake here is not whether to stop questioning modernity but how to find more specific tools of literary and literary analysis in which um to criticize it and how to be more self-reflexive reflective in dealing with the chinese version while criticizing Marshall Berman's persuasive theory that conjoins the notions of revolution and modernity, Perry Anderson gives us a clear definition of revolution. Quote, revolution is a term with the, a precise meaning, the political overthrow from below of one state order and its replacement by another. Nothing is to be gained by diluting it across time or extending it over every department of social space. It is necessary to insist that revolution is punctual and not a, not a permanent process. That is, revolution is a, an episode of cons, convulsive political transformation compressed in time and concentrated in target with a determinate beginning when the old state apparatus is still intact and a finite end when the apparatus is decisively broken and a new one erected in its stead. Damn, that's some freaking heat. Okay, you know, because I've reached the 25 minute mark, I'm just gonna give my last thoughts, essentially. Also, I don't really want to make this episode longer than 30 minutes, I realize. But first things first, um, Perry's Anderson um, definition of revolution is quite interesting to me um, because I'm wondering You know, if revolution needs a finite end, then if your state is in a state of chaos and limbo, then you are in a failed revolution. I never really thought about it like that. Um, Looking at failed coups and, and ongoing turmoil that lasts a very long time. Nobody wins from that. And so very much the revolutionaries are still losing. 
Um, and so it makes me wonder many things, so many things. Um, and under the new name of globalization, this, this concept of globalization and its connection to modernity, right? Can you have a modern society? And I say modern in quotes without being open to the world. So I guess there was that social implication that I was trying to get at earlier that, you know, you have to have at least a global understanding and perception that is common to what it means to be modern. And maybe that's it, is the being able to be open to the rest of the world, especially with the, the rise of technology. Um, I, I should probably more say the newer technology um such as phones the internet etc to be able to be in relationship with that and have high access to that relationship so at the end of the day you know i mean a lot of the concepts that they're bringing up before we get into the meat of this book have already got me thinking so many darn things so i think i'm just gonna hit the hay after this (laughs) or go to sleep and yeah i want to just think about how all these concepts are possibly going to be in relationship to the to the fiction and to the joy and to love of of the language of revolution i find it so fascinating so next episode we'll be diving in um way more um past page five and i just want to say thank you for listening to the podcast i will see you tomorrow